Please be seated. And a very good evening uh, to all of you. Uh, can I ask you to turn back with me, please, to our Old Testament reading today from Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, page 53 uh, of uh, your church Bibles. We're actually covering chapter 1 and 2, page 53, starting a, a new series uh, in Exodus. And can I also invite you to turn with me to the center page of the bulletin. Uh, the center page of the bulletin has an outline uh, of uh, the sermon tonight. Uh, so if you have that open, that will help you see where we're going and where we're up to. Uh, and those who would like to take a few notes are, are welcome to do so as well. So page uh, 53, Exodus chapter 1. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. God, our Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. We thank you that you've been speaking to us as your Word was read and sung, uh, and we pray now that you continue to do that as we consider this passage together. Uh, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit be at work among us. May he um, enable me to preach your Word uh, truthfully, rightly, helpfully, uh, and in his power. Uh, and may he work in each one of our hearts. Uh, may he enable us to, to see Jesus and the great salvation that you have won for us in him. Uh, may he enable us to, to appreciate and love Jesus more. Uh, may he uh, show us where we need to change uh, in our hearts and lives um, that we might uh, better live to, to love and serve him. Uh, so we ask uh, for, for your work among us uh, as we look at your word now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine being in a desperate situation that you cannot see any way out of? You're suffering miserably, but you can't get yourself free. In fact, everything you try to do just seems to make it worse. Maybe there's someone who can help you, but that, but that person, well, you don't even know if they know you or remember you. And even if they do, they may not really understand what you're going through. And even if they do, that you don't know if they couldn't do anything for you anyway. It's a terrible situation to imagine, isn't it? For some of us here, that, well, that might not need imagining. Maybe the story of your life. Last year, we completed the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. In Genesis, we saw that God created everything good. He made us human beings, and He made us His people, Adam and Eve. In His place, the Garden of Eden, under His blessing and rule. But humankind rebelled, we sinned, and we call that the fall. And we were no longer God's people, no longer in God's place. And together with the whole of creation, we came under God's curse. But we saw that 2,000 years before Christ, God made some great promises to this man called Abraham. Promises that foreshadowed that ultimate reversal of the fall. God promised him many descendants, God's people. He promised those descendants a land, a land that he showed Abraham, God's place. And he promised his descendants his blessing. 
And in fact, through Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. But throughout the rest of Genesis, there was this tension about the descendants part of the promise. Would Abraham have descendants in the way that God promised? And how will God work to make sure these descendants survived? By the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, an heir to those promises, had moved to Egypt with his family. God had raised his son, Joseph, to become ruler of Egypt under Pharaoh of the time. And through Joseph, God had saved that family and indeed the nation of Egypt from extermination in a famine. And when the book of Exodus opens, that question of descendants is now resolved. In verse 1 to 3, we see that when, when Jacob and his sons moved to Egypt, there were 70 of them. But after that generation, in verse 7, the people of Israel were, were fruitful, they multiplied, they filled the land. And that echoes, isn't it, what God had said to, well, way back before the fall, when he blessed humankind. These descendants of Jacob, or, or people of Israel, were going to be God's blessed people. But then, things slowly go sour. In verse 8, we read of a new king of Egypt, possibly from a new dynasty, a king who did not know Joseph. And so those connections of goodwill were lost. And as usual, when a migrant population are getting larger, the existing population begins to feel threatened. We've seen that in our own country. We see it all over the world. And this new king says to his people in verse 9, he says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so they oppress the Israelites with hard labor. They set taskmasters over them, verse 11, to afflict them with heavy burdens. And on the basis of this forced labor, they even build cities. But the Israelites continue to reproduce and their population continues to grow dramatically. In verse 12, and the Egyptians become more and more afraid of them. And so they make them more and more subservient, forcing them to work as slaves in their construction and agricultural industries, embittering their lives with cruel policies and forced labor. Friends, if you have responsibility for foreign workers, or even any workers here in Malaysia, please do look after them. Treat them well, do not enslave them, do not oppress them, do not cheat them, do not make their lives bitter. Hear these words from the New Testament book of James against those who exploit others. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Let us not share in the guilt of the Egyptians. So here we have God's people, the descendants of Jacob, the Hebrews, and here we have them now suffering as oppressed, miserable slaves in a land that is not their own. And they can't do anything about it. 
This is Israel's big problem. But does God see it? Does God care? Will God rescue His people? Before the book of Exodus brings us back to this question, it gives us some models, some pictures of rescue. And the first one is by a couple of Hebrew midwives who may have been leaders representing a larger group under them. In verse 16, the king of Egypt, trying to limit the population of Hebrew males, uh, says to the midwives, uh, when, you see, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and, and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But, but verse 17 says that the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And they are right to do that. Friends, God generally wants us to obey those in authority. But when they tell us to do something wrong, we should not go along with it. There will be times in our workplaces, in our colleges, even in our nation, when we have to say to, with the apostles, we must obey God rather than man. Fear God, like the midwives, and do what is right. When questioned by the king, the midwives give the excuse that Hebrew women tend to give birth too quickly for them. And God blesses these midwives. He, he gives them families, thus making them part of that multiplication blessing on his people. And we have here their names, Shipra and Pua, recorded in this passage, while even the names of Moses' parents aren't recorded. The Hebrew midwives saved the babies, and God blessed them for it. The Hebrew midwives saved the babies, but would God save his people? And secondly, we have Pharaoh's own daughter saving Moses. Happens like this. Pharaoh decides to change tactics. Instead of getting the midwives to kill the babies, he makes it an order for, for the people as a whole to do it themselves. He says in verse 22, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. But at the beginning of chapter 2, a child is born to this man and his wife, both of whom are Levites, which means they're one of the tribes that make up the Hebrew people. And for three months, the woman hides the baby at home. But when this is no longer tenable, she takes a basket made of papyrus and puts a waterproof coat on it. And then, well, actually, interestingly, the word translated basket in verse 3 is the same word that Genesis uses for ark. Uh, back in Genesis, God had saved Noah and his family from water in an ark. And so now we wonder if he's going to do the same thing for this baby. The mother puts a child into this ark and places it among the reeds by the riverbank. I guess she's technically cast her son into the Nile, as the king said. 
And her sister stays at a distance to see what will happen. Well, in verse, uh, verse 5, over the page, Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe at the river. And she sees the ark. She sends one of her young attendants to investigate. The, the girl brings the ark to her, and when she opens the ark, she sees the baby inside. He's crying. And when she sees him, her heart melts. Verse 6 says, she took pity on him. She took pity on him. She realizes he's a Hebrew baby, but her heart goes out to him. And then the sister springs into action. She comes and, and says to the Pharaoh's daughter, uh, in verse 7, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, yeah, yeah, go. And so, because you see, she, she wants to help this baby, and now she's just been given a, a way of doing it. And so this clever girl goes back to the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter employs the child's mother to take care of the child and nurse him for her. Isn't that great? God is the hero here, behind the scenes, in all the coincidences, even though he's not mentioned. But Moses' sister and mother are heroes of sorts, aren't they? They seek to protect the baby. They use their brains to do it. Friends, the fact that God is at work doesn't mean we don't use our brains. Jesus taught us to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Use your brains to strategize, not for evil, but for good. But know that God is sovereign and that He is the one who is ultimately carrying out His good purpose. When the child is of age, his mother brings him to Pharaoh's daughter and she adopts him as her own. And the name she gives him is Moshe, Moses. It's a common Egyptian name, but it sounds like the Hebrew word pulling out because she said, I drew him out of the water. The Egyptian princess had pity on Moses, saved him out of the water, and made him her son. Would God do the same for his people? Our next section is set many years later. Moses is now an important man in Egypt. But eventually he decides to venture out to his people. He sees their burdens, their forced labor, the slavery they're under. And one day he sees an Egyptian striking a Hebrew slave. He knows that no justice will be done, so he takes things into his own hands. He looks around, he sees no witnesses, and he avenges the Hebrew by striking down the Egyptian and hiding his body. Oh, the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting, and he says to the corporate, why do you strike your com companion? And to his surprise, the man answers in, 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 um, in verse 14, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? <gasps> a frightening realization comes upon Moses. What he thought was a secret is, is actually well known. And soon enough, the news reaches Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants Moses dead. He's a murderer and a traitor. And so Moses flees Egypt to the land of Midian, far, far away. 
Moses left the splendor of his palace to go out to his people. He saw their burdens and sought to bring them justice. He failed, but at least he tried. What about God? Would God see the burdens of his people? Would he avenge them and bring them justice? Would he actually be able to do it? When Moses goes into exile in Midian, he sits down by a well, and it just so happens in verse 16 in God's providence that seven daughters of the priest of Midian come to draw water to feed their father's flock. But they are bullied by some shepherds who, who chase them off. Moses stands up for them. In fact, verse 17 says that Moses saved them and watered their flock. And when they go home, they tell the father, Ruel, about what happened. And he insists he quickly go back and bring him, bring him home for a meal. And that's the beginning of the relationship of Moses with this family. He comes to live with them. And eventually the old man gives Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. And when she gives birth, he names his son Gershom, which is related to the word for sojourner, for he is a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses saved Ruel's daughters from the shepherds who oppressed them. Not only did he save them, but he served them by watering their flock and became part of their family. But would God save his people from their oppressors? Well, chapter 2 ends back with Israel and their big problem. The years are still going by. The king of Egypt dies, but the people are still enslaved. They groan, verse 23, because of their slavery. They cry for help, for rescue. Will God hear? Will God save his people? Well, look at me at the passage from the end of verse 23. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Friends, God cared for his people. He listened to their prayers, even though it felt like to them that he wasn't listening. He remembered his promises. He saw them. He knew what they were going through. Surely, he would soon save his people. Friends, God cares for his people. And if you are one of his people, then let me assure you, God cares for you. 
The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Cast all your cares on Him, for He cares for you. You may be going through terrible struggles. God knows. God knows the struggles that you're going through. He sees your burdens. He hears your prayers. Your cries come up to Him. He cares for you. God will work, and indeed He does work for your good. Even though when you and I are in the midst of the struggle, it doesn't seem that way. But God is at work for us to make us more like Christ. He will bring us through whatever it is that we are facing now, and all will eventually be well. He may fix things up now. He may fix things up later. He will certainly fix things up in the end. Even if we die now, all will be well in the end, because for believers, our time frame is not just this life, it's eternity, isn't it? God cares for us. And even if He does seem to take a long time, be patient. God hears us. He cares for us. He will save us in the end. In chapter 3, we're going to see God taking the first step to save His people Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And in the rest of the book of Exodus, we're going to see how that rescue happens. Like the Hebrew midwives saved the babies, he will save his people. Like Pharaoh's daughter, he will take pity on Israel. Not only will he save Israel and bring him out of water, he will adopt him and call Israel his son. He will see his people's burdens like Moses did. He will bring justice for his people and avenge the oppression of his people, just like Moses tried to but failed. He will stand up to the bullies of his people like Moses did to the shepherds. He will feed them as his flock and dwell among them as his own. God will rescue his people. But that rescue of Israel from slavery, that would just be a picture that would point to an even bigger rescue. Because remember how Genesis started with the fall and how we human beings were under the curse because of sin. Well, well, Jesus said that all who sin are slaves to sin. And all of us were in that category. Whether we realized it or not, we were all under the oppression of sin. When you're a slave to sin, you may, not, may or may not feel oppressed by it. Right? It's like if, if you're enslaved and addicted to a, to, to a, to a terrible illegal substance, it, it, it's, it's an oppressive thing. But you may not realize at the time. Sin stops you and me from enjoying God the way we were meant to. Stops us from relating to Him properly. Sin stops us from enjoying life the way we were meant to under Him. Because sin brings all kinds of evil and suffering and pain and brokenness into this world. Sin brings guilt and shame and breakdown in relationship. And unless we are saved from sin, it will cause us to go to hell under God's just punishment forever. Sin is a terrible slave master. And there is no way we can escape it on our own. Like the Israelites, we we can't throw off its shackle. It's too deeply ingrained in us. Sin affects every part of us. Our thinking, our will, our feelings, our behavior, our bodies, our minds. we're, We're stuck with it. And when God's holy law comes in and measures us with all our sin, it demands that we be put to eternal death. 
God heard our groaning. He pitied us. He saw our burdens. He remembered His promises. He knew that in the end we could never save ourselves. And so in the fullness of time, He sent forth His Son to save us from our sins. Like the midwives, He did not put us to death even though the law demanded it. But unlike the midwives who were forced to trick the Pharaoh, God, God saved us in perfect justice. Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin on our behalf so that we might be free. Like Moses' daughter who pitied the, uh, like Pharaoh's daughter who pitied the, the, the baby Moses and, and drew him out of the water and adopted her as her son. God had pity on us and he saved us from the slavery of sin so that those who trust in Jesus are no longer under sin. Sin is no longer our master and instead he has made us his children, heirs of his kingdom and we freely and willingly and lovingly serve him. Brothers and sisters, we have been saved from sin through the death of Jesus but sin is still with us we have been freed from sin by the death of Jesus but we still struggle against it we have renounced sin, we have turned away from it but it still tempts us to come back we have been made God's children but we still have to endure the suffering and pain of this broken world that is still under the curse caused by sin. We have been saved from sin now, but we do not experience this completely yet. That will only happen when Jesus returns. And so for now, there is still a sense in which we are like the Israelites who are waiting for God to save them. We still long for the day when our trials and temptations will be over and Jesus shall come. And together with creation we groan and we say, How long, O Lord? And it may seem like he's taking a long time to act. You know, between the birth of Moses and his running away from Egypt, that was 40 years. And from then to... What happens at the beginning of the next chapter? That's another 40 years. It must have seemed such a long time to those Israelites. And since the first coming of Christ until now, it's been 2,000 years. But the day for the Lord is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. We are still waiting. But the Bible tells us God's not being slow. He's being patient. Is longing for people to repent. But when the right time comes, Jesus will indeed return. And all the pain, all the groaning, all the trials will be over. God will save his people from the presence of sin. In the meantime, we are to hold fast to Jesus and continue to turn from sin and to trust in Him. 
And this passage helps us there as well. Because as we compare Moses, the one whom God is going to use to save Israel, with Jesus who saves us, well, that just helps us appreciate Jesus better. When Moses was born, he was saved from being killed by the decree of an evil king. When Jesus was born, he was saved from being killed by the decree of an evil king. We read about that in our, in our gospel reading today. And not only was Jesus saved from death when he was born, he was raised from death when he died. The Savior was saved. Moses was willing to leave behind the splendor of the palace, the treasures of Egypt, to be mistreated with God's people. Jesus, though being by very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and became one of us. But not only did he do that, but he even humbled himself to the lowest place among us by giving himself to death, even on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place. Moses took things into his own hands and tried his own way of saving his people. Jesus always did whatever the Father told him. He saved his people in obedience to the Father by giving himself for us to take the punishment for our sins. Like Moses stood up to the shepherds, Jesus fought the devil for us and defeated him on the cross. And by doing that for us, he made us, his people together, his bride. Moses would be used by God to save his people from slavery to Egypt and bring them to the promised land. Jesus would save his people from the bigger slavery, the slavery to sin, and bring them to the promised land of the new creation. He would be the one to ultimately reverse the fall and make us God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule once more. Jesus is ultimately greater than Moses, for he is God who has indeed come to save his people. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you keep your promises, that you hear our prayers, that you have pity upon us. Thank you that in your love you have saved us from sin and death and hell through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Please help us to patiently trust you as we wait for his return to rescue us and to bring us to be your people in your place under your blessing and rule forever. And as you teach us to trust you in the darkness, we pray that you help us to fear you and do what is right, even in difficult situations. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.